Welcome to the Potential for What podcast. On this podcast, we explore how a range of business leaders unlock the potential in people. We'll hear how they've done it, find out what has worked, what hasn't, and why this is so important in getting and keeping great people. Most businesses focus on the here and now. That is all about performance. But at Let's Talk Talent, we like to think differently as we fundamentally believe everyone has potential. The question is for what? So let's explore that together. I'm your host, Joe Taylor, Managing Director of Let's Talk Talent, a talent management and organizational development consultancy based in London, the UK. I have a request. If you value this show, if you enjoy these stories or find this wisdom or inspiration useful, please subscribe to the Potential for What podcast to listen to future episodes. Hi, everybody. I'm Joe, MD of Let's Talk Talent, and welcome to the first podcast in our new series, Potential for What. I'm really excited because I'm joined today by Eva Priestley, talent development leader, and we're going to talk today about potential for what. What makes potential? How do you spot it? And ultimately, how do you harness it both in individuals, teams and organizations? So welcome, Eva. Thank you, Joe. I'm super excited that you invited me today. And I hope I can share something that will be of value for you and for your listeners. Brilliant. So let's start by a sort of meta question at the beginning. How do you define potential? If you asked me this question a few years ago, I would have given you probably the most commonly used answer, which um, evolves somewhat around a nine box uh, definitions, learning agility models, but it's a boring one, if you want my honest opinion. And I'm not entirely sure if it is still a relevant one. So how I would identify or define potential today is where the company's evolving needs to satisfy the problems or solve the problems that uh, their customers have are met with the needs that the employees have in terms of achieving their job fulfillment. And I think there is now a growing trend that starts to talk about job fulfillment rather than engagement. And I'm super, super excited to read The Blind Spot, which is a book recently released by Gallup around the crisis of happiness and what it means for people to be fulfilled at work. Because I believe that what potential is going to become, and that's obviously my personal opinion, is how the companies can harness the combination of factors involved in the job fulfillment to enable their employees to realize their full potential and performance within the context of the organization. And that will vary greatly individual by individual. So I think that finding some form of numerical frameworks like we tried to do in the past is going to become harder and harder. So why do you think we still stick to the nine box grid? Because I have an allergic reaction to it. And I talk about it in our succession planning white paper around um, that it's kind of old, it's antiquated. We kind of need to throw away those old tools and templates. Why do we think a lot of businesses stick with the same traditional talent management models? Well, my personal belief is that because it is the comfort uh, of predictability that these models offer. Are they relevant today and in the future? I believe they are becoming less and less, or they have already become irrelevant. But because they give us some sense of control and they give us some sense of answers, 
we continue to use them, even though I would imagine a lot of people who will be listening to this podcast will also be questioning whether these models are relevant and effective today. So I think it's because we are just a little bit fearful to go into a white space and redesign something or completely invent something different because we don't know whether it's going to work. I also believe that another reason why we stick to these old models is because they have had a lot of research behind them, a lot of efficacy, validity studies. Uh, we work in environments today, especially when I work, I work in tech sector, where I often get asked, give me the evidence that this works. Give me the um, validity study that this approach makes sense, that it drives results. And if you are faced with that sort of binary question, it's difficult as a talent professional to sometimes convince leaders that let's give it a go because we actually believe we should do it differently, but perhaps we should pioneer the answer and see what happens and not rely on management books and studies of the last 50 years. So I think it's it's the second reason we stick to it. And the third one is that there is a growing body of research which says that to really understand human potential in the organizational context, you have to start looking at the dimensions of human behavior that are not your typical measurable dimensions. It's not things that you see very well. It's not something that managers can put into metrics and rubrics and you can assign very simple KPIs on those things. I think that it's becoming so much more about human qualities, such as a sense of happiness, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of well-being. These are the concepts that are not widely researched yet, and they haven't been implemented into the potential models very well yet. And I think that there is a sense of trepidation, sense of concern or fear in either talent community or in leadership as a whole, how we actually measure that, how we engage with our employees in conversations that are so deeply human, how we engage in conversations that talk about not only them at work, but talk about them in their family context, in their community context. These are the things that require different capabilities of managers. And I think we are a little bit afraid of what that might mean, and a little bit afraid that we will lose some controlled variables in that process. So these will be probably the reasons why we stick to those old methods. What I love about what you're saying is that when you go back to what you said at the beginning about how we can kind of throw away those antiquated models and kind of look at fulfillment, you're actually talking about potential being someone able to bring their whole self. So you're looking at the whole human rather than looking at sets of skills or criteria or attributes that define one person's potential as a future leader versus someone who's a specialist to someone that's talented. So when you think about using that new way of measuring potential, when you've assessed it or you've really thought about it and, and, and identified it, what do you do with those people that perhaps have the highest potential? And is that the right terminology at all to even use? Yeah, good point. Is that even the right word? That's that's probably the question. Um, what um, I have experimented with in the last 18 months is to look at measuring natural talents. Um, and there is um, a really, really cool startup in Canada called Plum. They developed a product based on this premise that actually when you are either hiring or developing people in the organization, 
you shouldn't be really constraining yourself to the thinking about the hard skills they have, to the functional skills they have, to the expertise, experience they bring, that you should actually really inject into the decision-making about who you hire, who you develop and for what, uh, by combining what natural talents these individuals have um, using um, a fundamental principles of Ericksonian psychology, and what roles in the organization will mostly capitalize on these natural talents that people have. What it does, it just almost takes the, what we call technical skills out of the equation, because it believes that if you match the job with regards to the natural talents, to the person who already has these natural talents, everything else is trainable. Everything else is coachable. And I think that now when we are faced with the current economy, challenges, market labor conditions, shortages of talent, pressures on a higher velocity of upskilling of people in the organizations, that's kind of a very interesting idea to almost unlock more gateway, entry-level jobs so that people are not hired for what they know, but they are hired for what they are naturally good at, and then they can learn to know whatever they need to know with the support of the organization. And I think that this is a, an interesting way of injecting a slightly different way of thinking about potential. It will require, of course, a complete reinvention of what learning and development, talent development functions will have to do, and also a huge shift in talent acquisition, right? Because you're kind of, you're losing, again, that safety blanket that you are hiring someone who already has some capabilities that are required to do the job. You are trusting that you will train for these capabilities, but they will have the natural attributes that will make them successful in whatever role they're going to take in your organization. It's a big, bold, uh, big, bold bet that companies will have to take. And I really like what Plum are doing. And I, I like how some, some of the organizations they work with are already experimenting with this approach. I really like that because it. I always thought in my career, that I've always hired for attitude. Um, and if you say attitude is part of potential, whether that's curiosity, whether that's drive, I know that I can teach them the skills that they need to be a great talent management professional. But if they've got the right attitude, then I will always take much more of a risk. And, and that's, for me, the, the difference, isn't it, between, in a way, recruiting for performance and driving high performance and that kind of off the cliff thought around actually does that person has the potential I'm going to take more of a um, punt and if it doesn't work out it's much more sort of growth mindset isn't it in terms of thinking than fixed mindset which is I need someone that's got leadership skills infrastructure data and all of that actually it's more about how they fit in the ecosystem and the culture of an organization which sounds really exciting I love and that. What I, and what I would add, Joe, is that um, I think we all notice really tectonic shifts that are happening in the world with regards to equity, uh, how employees perceive their rights. And this is way beyond the, the sort of traditional way of thinking about diversity and inclusion. I believe that by shifting talent models into these models that measure more natural aptitudes and then the skills are trained you sort of give more people equal chances because there are so many communities that have no access to the correct uh, level of education required to join some of these more 
sought after positions in sought after companies is that you're kind of almost disempowering these individuals from having a go from the very beginning. And I think that with these ongoing trends on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and giving everybody a fair chance and a fair deal, again, shifting talent models into something that is more innate to you, and then harnessing that and then and growing it within the company, and then offering upskilling programs, then that is um, a, a much more equitable world that I would love to see in the next 10 to 20 years. And I read something recently, um, I think Microsoft is making a pledge of rehiring its own people, right? And again, I think that's around the equity, because I think what I saw, at least in the technology sector in the last three years, was that no one was really thinking about the people in the company. Everybody was obsessing about hiring new people. And every time there was a shortage of particular skills, either in the space of machine learning, data science, AI, whatever, the idea was always, we're going to bring the experts. But what about people who can become these experts internally? I think companies haven't done the best job in that. So I'm really encouraged to hear things like what Microsoft is saying. Let's pay attention to what we already have. It's the capital we already can leverage. And it's also the right thing to do. Back to that equity point that I just made. It's a shift to grow your own. And that must have an effect on, you know, the phenomenons that we're seeing around, you know, the great resignation or quiet quitting. People are going to need to shift because there is a skills shortage in certain um, industries. So if you don't invest in growing your own and starting to think about what that means, you don't create that fairness that you talk about, but also you disempower, as you also said, a workforce that's always thinking, well, I'm not good enough because actually there's newness outside. And it's like that shiny penny that you go after um, rather than actually thinking I've got loads of different skills and attributes in my company. Why am I spending money effectively hiring externally when I could be growing and nurturing And even more so, there are some organizations out there that very consciously communicate to their employees that every next hire needs to be a certain percentage better performer than someone who's already in the role. How does that make people feel? They know that the company is actually consciously hiring people that are supposed to push the performance forward because they are supposed to be even better at doing the role than someone who's already in the role. And I think I, I understand the idea behind it, that we just continuously push performance forward. But I think that the current reality of what people are willing to accept and what they are no, willing, no more willing to accept in the context of the work they perform, I think that that's not going to work um, anymore. Quiet quitting is an interesting concept. You mentioned it because I think there is an interesting debate about it that I'm starting to hear, which is, is quiet quitting actually a bad thing or is a quiet quitting a reminder that people will have boundaries, that people will not sacrifice everything they have for the benefit of the company, they don't receive anything back. And maybe quiet quitting is a moment of reflection for organizations and for leaders to think about maybe it's not actually healthy for everybody to be always chasing the next big thing. Maybe some people are choosing to create an environment for themselves that job is the job and this is what I do. It's not people who underperform. It's just people who don't go above and beyond visibly, right? In terms of what we consider above and beyond. 
And maybe it's not a bad thing. Maybe it is also a good reminder for all of us that we can get a little bit lost in this race for the next big shiny thing, like you said. I agree with you. I don't see it as a negative. I think it's a kind of recalibration. I think it's a real moment in time in way people want to work. COVID has absolutely exacerbated. Um, the hybrid has exacerbated it. But ultimately, it's making businesses wake up, which they haven't done for a very long time. So I actually think it's really exciting and it's giving a much clearer mandate for professionals like us to sort of um, be more innovative than we perhaps could have been 10 or 15 years ago. So I'm always one of the kind of optimists and always think the best is yet to come um, rather than think, okay, well, it was brilliant. An old boss said to me once, if you're driving a car and all you're doing is looking in the rear view mirror, you're going to crash. And it really feels relevant at the moment in terms of the kind of uh, world of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if people wanted to find out more about you and your thoughts and your feelings, where would they find you and get in contact with you? I am not a very prolific podcaster or an author. <laughs> I, uh, I tend to stay a little bit anonymous. I keep my controversial thoughts largely to small rooms, small discussions. So I hope that uh, by doing this podcast, I'm not going to get exposed to some <laughs> viral trolling <laughs> because I do have maybe sometimes quite uh, radical views on some of the profession that I also represent, right? Uh, but if people wanted to get in touch with me, they can always find me on LinkedIn. And I am very happy to enter a debate about uh, all sorts of things related to talent development, learning, leadership. I think that we are in a beautiful moment in time with regards to redefining what it may mean for the future. Because even when you read everything that is being written and researched on the future of work, the hybrid working models, that big research that Microsoft just released a, a week ago about productivity paranoia and things like that. I think that it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal chance for all of us who work in talent space to get together to very, very critically evaluate what we've been doing to date and not be afraid to try break things in a sort of controlled, small, contained environment, but actually give it a go and try completely different new things and try to convince people we work with uh, from the business leadership that it does take courage, but it makes sense to do it. And I think that's probably going to be the, the hardest thing for people like you, me, and everybody else who does the job we do. First of all, convince yourself that taking a risk is okay. And second of all, convince your leaders, your CEOs, <laughs> that it's actually worth pursuing something that no one else has done before. And we don't quite frankly know where we're going to land, but it's okay, right? So I think I agree with you. I think that the moment is actually super exciting. So the final two questions I wanted to ask you, and we're going to be asking everybody on um, this new podcast that we're doing. The first question is, what is the proudest moment of your career? I had a lot of mess ups and failures in my career. And when you ask me this question, somehow I naturally go to those rather than my proudest moments. But let me try this. I think my proudest moment was when I truly embraced who I was meant to be uh, at work. For a long, long time, probably for the first 10 to 12 years of my professional career, I tried to fit in or I tried to be what I thought was the expectation of me. And that 
involved both how I was meant to be as a professional, but also how I was meant to be as a leader, how I was meant to be as a woman, how I was meant to be as an immigrant in the UK, because I came from another country. And I deprived myself of truly owning who I was. And I had a really great manager once who helped me understand that if I really lead through my superpower and what I'm meant to be and what I'm meant to do, I would be at my absolutely best. And the moment I realized that that was true and I started using that superpower more and more, which always gave me huge amount of anxiety when I was doing it. But then when I saw the impact that I was creating on the people that were receiving that and on the organizations that those people were working for, ultimately, I realized that that was the best gift I ever received from that manager to really encourage and point me out to that purpose that I am here to to serve. And this is, I guess, my proudest moment. The moment I embraced it and I was not afraid anymore to be that. Uh, that's when I became more, most powerful and most successful. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And the final question is, what's your favorite podcast or book to recommend to anyone listening to this podcast on looking to unlock their potential? This is going to be a bit of a weird choice, Joe, but I really would love everybody, employees, managers, leaders to read the Atlas uh, of the Heart by Brené Brown. And this is not about potential models, career development, but I think it is about something that we forget in organizations all the time. And I think the companies that will be brave enough to embrace human emotions with their whole messiness and beauty, that managers who will be trained to understand why people do what they do, what drives certain behaviors, how to disarm certain dysfunction that can happen because of emotions. These will be the companies that will win in that next iteration. So Atlas of the Heart for me is a really great reminder of what distinguishes us from the technology and the machines that we are now using to make better decisions about humans. But I think that there are some really beautiful sacred things about us that we should not forget. And I think in this pursuit of automation and scaling that everybody talks about, we should not forget that each and single one of us is a beautiful computer in its own right with some really beautiful emotions inside. And we should really embrace them, cherish them, and at least allow them to happen and not be afraid when it happens in the workplace. What a wonderful way to end this podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for talking from the heart and being brave and uh, sharing with your thoughts and feelings. It's been truly inspiring. I wish you success going forward and uh, challenging yourself. And uh, in a way, as we say, uh, always in, in our values, kind people are our kind of people. And you are certainly one in a million. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. It was my pleasure. I hope uh, it's going to be helpful, valuable, or at least thought-provoking for uh, those of uh, your customers and partners who will be listening to this podcast in the future. Thank you, Joe, for having me. Thanks for listening to the Potential for What podcast. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to our new episode all the way to the end. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please share this episode with others who may be interested in this topic. 
As always, you can head over to letstalktalent.co.uk forward slash podcasts to check out all the links and resources in the show notes and to sign up to our email list. 